Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. Spring has sprung, and in this episode, we explored advances in female and male reproduction in honor of newborn life many people celebrate at this time of year. The new prostate-specific membrane antigen, PSMA, PET imaging, will significantly improve how prostate cancer is detected and treated. The FDA approved a novel radio tracer in December 2021 for positron emission tomography, or PET imaging, of the PSMA-positive lesions in men with prostate cancer. This is Gallium-68 PSMA-11. It's a radioactive imaging agent that binds to prostate cancer cells to help localize them. Physicians Weekly Senior Editor Dr. Marta Kelly speaks with urologist Chris de Blasio in Fort Myer, Florida, a urologist. But first, we speak with lead study author Dr. Yaniv Elkubi from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in Israel. We wanted to find out more about his team's research that was recently published in the journal Science about how eggs develop in the fetal period in developing females. Keeping with the spring theme, this involves a chromosomal bouquet formed by microtubule fibers, which is necessary for proper oocyte development. When perturbations in this structure occur, infertility or miscarriage results. Join us in this review of how eggs are formed to get in the groove for Easter. Enjoy listening. Okay, today we're here with Christopher de Blasio, MD, who is a board-certified urologist and urologic surgeon in Fort Myers, Florida. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about PSMA PET, which is a precise and effective method for detecting metastatic prostate cancer. Could you give us a little rundown of what to describe what PSMA PET is to our listeners? Sure. So PSMA PET scan is a special imaging technique that identifies a protein called PSMA that's exhibited on prostate cancer cells. And so it differs from traditional PET scan, which used how quickly the cells would metabolize a certain material as a marker of activity. So what's really neat about PSMA is that it's, it's really isolated to prostate cells. And so it's been really novel for diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer patients with advanced disease. And what are the two types of scan used in the PSMA PET scan? Could you describe how that works? Sure. So the PSMA PET scan is a combination of a CAT scan, which gives imaging quality, and then combined with a functional test, which is involving the radioisotope that is injected, which then links up to the PSMA protein that's exhibited on the prostate cancer cells. So it's not just an imaging, it's actually an imaging and a functional test. What patients are the best candidates for this procedure? Right now where we're using PSMA PET scan mostly is in patients who have been treated and have had some degree of recurrence. And where it's really helpful is to identify the extent of the recurrence, whether it's just localized disease in the prostate after, say, surgery or radiation therapy, and the PSA starts to rise. What we really want to know is where 
is the recurrence and how extensive is the recurrence. So right now, I would say the bulk of patients that are getting PSMA PET are folks that have already been treated and suffered some form of recurrence, and we're staging them to then determine what the next treatment steps are. That said, I think very quickly, the utility of PSMA in the diagnostic setting is also very helpful. So traditionally, for a certain level of concern patient, meaning sort of intermediate or high-risk disease prostate cancer patients at time of diagnosis, we would traditionally get imaging such as a CAT scan and a bone scan. What we're really seeing is very quickly that PSMA PET is supplanting those tests. It's just much better quality and much higher sensitivity and specificity. So I'm actually seeing in my own practice and in other practices that PSMA PET is really becoming standard of care for also the diagnostic portion of this. And what actually happens during the procedure? So the patient comes in and once they're registered and checked in, a dye is injected intravenously. That dye takes about one hour to be processed by the body and then it starts to get excreted and mark on the PSMA antigen. At that time, then the patient will go through the scanner, which is similar to a traditional CAT scan, so it's not super claustrophobic like an MRI, and the scan takes about 20, 25 minutes, and then usually we'll have results within a couple of hours. You mentioned something called a radio tracer also in there. Uh, could you describe that, and what, what is the function of the radio tracer? So the radio tracer attaches to the PSMA antigen. So right now, there are two tracers that are widely available. One is more widely available, and that's the gallium tracer. And that is where you're seeing the majority of PSMA PET around the country are being done with gallium. It's more available, and it's, it's easier access for the patients. Um, there's a second radioisotope that's the Polarify, which is also approved for prostate cancer patients, but it's a little bit more difficult to obtain. So that has been a little bit more of a limiting factor. Most folks are using the gallium. So the gallium is injected, it gets processed, and then it links up to the protein on the prostate cancer cell. And that's where you can see the activity. It shows up as sort of a like a bright orange glow to that tissue that's showing signs of uptake. Is there anything that you would like to add to the conversation? In other words, uh, would you like to see more of a, a widespread use of this technology? Well, I think regardless of my opinion, PSMA PET is hands down the best diagnostic tool that we've had so far for prostate cancer. So as a physician, I'm really excited about it. And potentially as a patient, I'm very excited about it. So I have a really strong family history. Both my grandfathers died from prostate cancer. So developments such as this are huge for my patients, but also potentially for me. So in a selfish way, I'm very excited that this exists also. The really cool next step, and it's, it's already happening now, which, which really I didn't see happening in my lifetime, are the development of Theranostics, which is now that we have the ability to really with strong confidence, isolate these areas that are involved is to link up that radioisotope to a therapeutic agent and then inject it. And it's sort of like a seek and destroy situation where it will go selectively to those prostate cells and render treatment in a really difficult population of patients traditionally. So 
I think this is huge. We're really just sort of at the tip of the iceberg for this, but it's really exciting. It's happening in the here and now. And really, I think this is already in the 18 months I've been using PSMA PET has really revolutionized my practice. So globally with Theranostics, I think the sky's the limit. That's great. Well, I, th- I want to thank you for sharing this with us today. It's thank very you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. So, hi, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. El Kabi. Could you please just introduce yourself briefly? Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. My name is Yanni Velkubi from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem School of Medicine, where I run my uh, research group investigating the early stages of foresight development. So, fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Can you just tell me a little bit about your research in, in fairly simple terms? I know that you're studying oogenesis, and I think we need a little crash course on developmental biology here. Can you just start with the basics? Right, so oogenesis uh, describes the process of egg formation. So egg and sperm are the gametes that have to be joined together during fertilization and creates the new progeny of a species. Their formation is a very dynamic process. It's dynamic, but it also has to be carried out very precisely. In the case of oocytes, or early egg cells, developing egg cells are called oocytes, their developmental program begins really early in the developing ovaries of the fetus. So when, when the female is still a fetus in her mother's womb, this is where this process begins. During these early stages, it generates the follicles that will then be ovulated throughout the ovulation cycles later in life. So it begins very early during development, but it's an ongoing process. Right. And where do your research interests lie in this process? So we're focused on the earliest stages uh, of this process during the development of the ovary from the very beginning of their, the differentiation of these cells, all the way to the formation of the primary follicle. The primary follicle will then later develop into the mature follicles that are ovulated during the uh, ovulation cycles in mammals. Can you give me a rough idea of when in gestation is that? So in humans, the, the corresponding events are probably around week 15 pregnancy. That's, that's in humans. In mice, where it's mostly studied, it's around E14.5 to E16.5. Uh, relatively late in the development in mice then? A little bit development in terms of the development of the body and the organs. It lags behind the other organs, but it's still early in terms of the life of the developing individual. Right, and so at some point, there's a symmetry breaking, right, in the oogenesis. Describe that process for us. Right, so study this process in the zebrafish as a, as a model. One of the challenges is the fact that these processes are actually executed in the developing ovary, and are not really accessible for research for obvious ethical and, and experimental reasons. In the zebrafish, the developing ovaries are much more accessible, and they execute a very similar program to oogenesis as mammals and humans. Processes, the regulators are, are really concerned. So just to get this straight, in zebrafish, the eggs are laid and then they're fertilized, correct? Correct. And so the oogenesis happens long before that, but you can open the ovaries of the fish and access the developing ovaries. Right. The process of that the egg undergoes during the oogenesis program is very similar to what a human egg would undergo. A major difference is the fact that zebrafish females continue to produce eggs throughout life. So there are no specific ovulation cycles. They generate eggs de novo all the time, and they can 
lay them all the time, which makes them really attractive as experimental systems. The processes we are focusing on are far more accessible during the juvenile development of the fish. So very young fish. We have all the early stages of development laying in the ovary. The ovary itself is clear and transparent and flat. So it's, it's a heaven for uh, microscopy. So we can really get a deep look at all the stages of development in high resolution in space and time. The symmetry breaking that you mentioned is leading to formation of a structure in the oocyte. It's called the Volbiani body. This Volbiani body is really conserved in oocytes from arthropods and, and insects all the way to humans. In mammals, it's been implicated in the formation of the polypel, but there are not enough tools, experimental tools, to really dissect the function and regulatory mechanisms to control it. In zebrafish, the Volbiani body serves an additional function in polarizing the egg in a manner that's really important for later embryonic development. So in the embryo, there are certain factors that have to localize precisely in one position in order to pattern the embryo. So one of the major questions in embryology, right, is how do you get from one symmetric cell, the egg or fertilized embryo, into a complicated body with anterior-posterior axis, dorsal ventral, and so on. Uh, so a lot of this information comes from the egg, and it comes from, and it's delivered to the right place early in egg development by this Volbiani body. And we could characterize its formation. It's been identified 180 years ago, almost, first in spiders. But the mechanism of its formation were unknown. We were able to identify the symmetry breaking of the oocyte and then the maturation of this organelle. How is that regulated exactly, or is there anything more you want to tell me about that? Right. There's a, a very unique organization in the oocyte that is early stages of development that actually has to do, or traditionally has been investigated in the context of the process of meiosis, so the organization of chromosomes towards fertilization, right? So every gamete in the sperm and egg have to, must have a half of a set of chromosomes, the paternal and maternal chromosomes, for successful fertilization, where they generate the, the new genome of the embryo. This, this process has to be carried out very precisely. Defects in the, the organizational chromosomes are the leading cause for uh, miscarriages and infertility. However, we still, because of the reasons I mentioned earlier about the accessibility of these early stages to research, we still don't understand the, those defects because we don't know enough about the natural process. We had another discovery that is directly related to this, but what happens is that there's an organization in the oocyte where chromosomes are really taking a, a specific shape where they're organized with all their ends at one end of the nucleus, looping the rest of the chromosome to the other side in a configuration that looks like a bouquet of flowers, and therefore it's called the chromosomal bouquet. And this bouquet configuration is really at the heart of the meiosis event. So chromosomes, in order to organize, to form half a set, they need to meet their homologue, switch some fragments, and then continue in their development. So in order to find their homologue, they really have to move in space. And the mechanism that made them move in space is the fact that they're tethered to the nuclear envelope on their ends, and from and on the nuclear envelope connected to a network of microtubules, cytoskeletal elements, micro molecular cables sort of that wraps around the nucleus. And this enables the, the sliding of telomeres on the nuclear envelope, which, which in turn shuffles the chromosomes inside. So these right. movements of shuffling are really driving the homologous surges. And at some point, all the telomeres will concentrate or be pulled to one side of the nucleus, 
which is opposed to the centrosome, which organizes those microtubule cables. And this is conserved all the way from yeast to mammals. And these telomere dynamics are really essential for fertility. The animals with mutations in these mechanisms, in proteins that are involved in these mechanisms, are sterile. And what we found in the symmetry breaking event is that this same organization that controls chromosome organization is also breaking the symmetry of the cell by localizing the components that lead to Volpiani body formation around the centrosome using the same cables at the same time of the bouquet. So, and so in this process, the, the axis of the bouquet really predicts the polarity axis of the oocyte that is then required for the polarity of the embryo. So the source of embryonic polarity is actually traced back all the way to the very onset of differentiation of the oocyte so early in development and is coupled mechanistically with the meiosis program. That's really interesting. So can you just speculate for me? I mean, I know there's some evidence too, but it's limited because of the inaccess of, of model animals. What are some of the medical implications of understanding these early stages of oogenesis? And I suppose, on the other hand, you've got the spermatogenesis. Is there anything analogous to that that you can draw comparisons to? Right, absolutely. So in humans, those early events really determine the number and quality of, of eggs for the entire female lifespan. Because females are born with a set pool of follicles, they're all generated during fetal development, and there's no new generation of oocytes later in life. Uh, at least this is the consensus. And so these are really critical stages to understand. They're the most challenging to look at, but also the most critical to understand. And so, and I believe that you know they're also most promising to to identifying uh, new mechanisms or overlooked mechanisms. One example is a newly identified organelle that we discovered at these stages that was never known before to be forming in oocytes, in spermatocytes. It has to do with the same bouquet configuration that I described earlier. And what happens there is that we were curious to understand how these, because if you imagine all the processes that I described earlier with the rotation of telomeres and pooling, it's really a mechanical process, right? It's like a tug-of-war. Exactly. So you have the telomere ends that you have to pull around. They all have to be pulled to the same side. And then, then you ask questions that raises. So how, how is it organized? Is, the, is there a counter force to enable the pooling and so on? And so what we identified is exactly that. We identified a, an organelle that's called the cilium, which is a microtubule-based organelle that grows from the cell centrosome and extends extracellularly. Uh, like a little fiber or antenna from the cell. And we found that it connects to the centrosome at the same time that this cytoskeletal cable system is being built around the nucleus. And it's really necessary to anchor this cable system to counterbalance the pooling. So by various genetic tricks in different experiments and also by advanced microscopy tools that we have to, where we can really, in high resolution, upsize the cilium and look in real time what happens, and we could really establish this anchoring is essential. Without the cilium, instead of the telomeres being pulled towards the centrosome, the centrosome collapses towards the nucleus, and telomeres fail to cluster. So you really need this anchor to mechanically hold and counterbalance these rotations, and when the telomeres fail to cluster, their pairing is abrogated, eggs they die, over ovaries fail to develop, and females develop as infertile. It's really essential. And so if there's a defect in the cilium in a zebrafish model, for example, do they become infertile? They do, yes. The adult females in these mutation, in these mutant conditions, 
where the cilia did not form, the ovaries exhibit ovarian dysgenesis, so they're much smaller. They have degenerated masses of tissues, degenerated oocytes, and they can train spontaneously. In, in IVF trials, they produce either dead eggs or no eggs at all. So they really are. Yeah, okay. So have you been able to, or has anyone else been able to apply some low-dose paclitaxel or some kind of microtubule stabilizer to see if this would perhaps support some of these processes? That's interesting. We mostly tried to protrude the process, what, what goes wrong, right? We did not do that, yes. The, the next challenge is to really decipher the mechanisms of the mechanism of actions of the cilium. So we hypothesized that it has common ciliary machinery, like many other cilia, but cilia often shows cell type-specific composition and regulators. So we really think that there are specific regulators to allow this unique anchoring function, uh, and we're hoping to get to them, and then we'll be able to manipulate this further. Fascinating, fascinating. Are there any final comments you want to share with uh, doctors about what the value is of understanding these basic processes? Yes, if I could make two points, it would be that first, so we found that this cilium is not only forming in zebrafisha oocytes, they're also forming in decubal and stages in spermatocytes, also in the male. And we also looked in mice donors, testes and oocytes, and they are conserved. So I think it serves as an excellent example of how different model organisms that we can really contribute to our understanding of human biology. And in the specific case of the cilium, you know, there are a group of 143 syndromes called ciliopathies that are born from genetic defects in cilia proteins and genes. Patients of some of these diseases suffer from infertility. This has been so far explained by cilia in either the sperm flagella, which is similar in composition to the cilia, but not identical, or by cilia in other parts of the reproductive tracts, like the cilia in the fallopian tubes that carry the else to the uterus. The, the discovery of the zygonocilium really opens a new platform uh, to understand what goes wrong in this disease and identify overlooked mechanisms. I believe it's really exciting. I think in most of these ciliopathy conditions, fertility is not even addressed. Based on my conversation with physicians, there are no records for whether um, there are fertility issues or not. I mean, some of these are very severe, affecting young children. In, but, but in more milder conditions, it could be very relevant. But, you know, this information is not even collected. So I think this is important to, to note. Yeah, some of them are not compatible with life even, right? So It is. The process is, is just fascinating. It's very dynamic, and uh, we're fortunate to be able to work with zebrafish, where we combine, you know, advanced microscopy and live microscopy, so we can look at events in real time. It's like, it's the closest thing you have to sticking your head in the cell and looking at it. Are you able to use any of those fluorescent markers that look so beautiful in zebrafish? Uh, yes, I mean, we use, yeah, fluorescent. To track cell types and, and cell movements? Yes. Fascinating. Yep. Okay, well, thank you so much, Anif. I appreciate your time. I thought it was very interesting, especially, you know, appropriate for Easter. And good luck with your research. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Stay tuned for our next episode as we are joined by top thought leaders to discuss the latest groundbreaking research presented at this month's top annual medical meeting. 